How big is God? Is there anything that God cannot do? Is there anything that God can do? You know, what do we think about God? I was recently helping my son do a project for school. He was doing a solar system project. He has to put this solar system model together. And anytime you start thinking about the universe, I think about how big God is. I don't know about you, but that is where my mind just goes. How deserving of praise God is. How big he is. How vast is his universe. I want you to consider what uh, we see and hear all over the scriptures. Psalm 66 says, shout joyful praises to God, all the earth. Sing about the glory of his name. Tell the world how glorious he is. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Your enemies cringe before your mighty power. Everything on earth will worship you. They will sing your praises, shouting your name in glorious songs. Come and see what our God has done. What he awesome miracles he performs for people. God's word tells us over and over and over again to consider the things that God has done using his power and his might. But what if we have a hard time seeing what God has done? Haven't we all been in a place like that at some point in our life where we have a hard time seeing the things that God is up to? That we have a hard time understanding and finding evidence that God is at work. For those of us that love and follow and worship God today, why does it seem like sometimes God's people suffer a lot? Why is that? Why can it be so hard to follow God at times? Because it does feel that way many times. It can be very hard. Well, we are starting a message series today, eight weeks long, going through the entire book of Exodus. And the stories in the book of Exodus are possibly depicted in Hollywood and in literature more than any of the Old Testament stories. That that is where we find, that's kind of where we go when we think about the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, it provides a window into the power of our great big God of the universe. Not only do we see God's power in Exodus, we see his relationship with people. We see God's power and we see the relationship with a group of people, a people that have hope even when things are difficult because of him. That no matter what is happening, in their lives or in our lives, when we look at this book and we look at the world around us, we can be reminded that we can have hope because of the God who calls us my people. So turn with me to the book of Exodus. If you brought your Bible, turn to the book of Exodus. Um, We are opening the book of Exodus expecting God to speak. As we open God's word, we expect God to speak to us. 
That is the posture that we have when we open any of God's word. We're expecting him to show himself. And you heard a great summary of the first two chapters of Exodus from some of our youngest friends today. And so hopefully you're there in the second book of the Bible as it picks up right after the first, the book of Genesis. Exodus 1.1 starts this way. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family. Now, the first word in the Hebrew text is not reflected in our English translations. The Hebrew can communicate all kinds of things in one word. It's, it's a shorter language than what we speak in English. So in this one word that starts the book of Exodus, it actually says, and these are the names in the first word of Exodus. The, the book of Exodus starts with a conjunction. So any English teachers out there, you might be cringing, thinking that is not how you start a sentence. That is not how you start a book. What are you thinking? Well, what we need to see is that this is a continuation of a story, that all the books of the Bible are not just disconnected, random books. They're one story together. And so there is a necessary conjunction at the book, uh, the first verse of the book of Exodus, because it is connected to the first. And now this is what is happening next. It's the story of the family of Abraham and his son, Isaac, and his son, Jacob, and then his 12 sons. And Genesis takes us up to this point where Jacob and his family and this group, this clan now numbers in around 70 people and they have found themselves in the country of Egypt. And in order to understand the Old Testament, in order to understand the, under the Bible, you have to understand this family. You need to know that this family has been renamed by God that it's not just the family of Abraham. You can think of them that way, but God gave them a name. He renamed Jacob Israel. It's right here in the first verse, the sons of Israel, that is Jacob. So Jacob was given the name of Israel. Israel is the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is who Israel is. And this is the story that we find. So, this is not a story of unrelated events. The Bible is connected. It is one story. And we can't recap the whole uh, story of Genesis. That's not what we're here to do. But it is important for us to understand what was promised to this family. We have to understand the things that God promised this family if we're going to understand the book of Exodus well. So look at Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. This is God's promise to Abraham. He says this, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All of the families on earth will be blessed through you. God promised to make this family 
a nation, Israel. He promised them to be a very large nation. In other places, he says, you need to look up at the stars, Abraham. Your family will be as vast as that. A great nation that will bless the entire earth. That is quite the promise. There's only a problem is that this is a small, insignificant family living in an insignificant corner of the world. And through some incredible family drama and a famine, this family ends up in Egypt. You can read the last 13 chapters of Genesis if you want to get up to speed on the story, but they are in Egypt and that is where we find ourselves. And yes, it is the same Egypt that you are thinking in your mind, the Egypt in Africa, Egypt, the ancient civilization that was the great world superpower. In this time and world history, they were the most important nation and civilization on the planet. See, we think of Egypt, we think of the pyramids, and you should, because it demonstrates just what this civilization was capable of. I don't know if you knew this, but the Great Pyramids are the only original wonder of the world that are still standing that you can go visit. They were the tallest man-made structures in the world for 3,800 years. They stand about 50 stories tall. They were built in about 2,500 BC, which means that the Israelites did not build the pyramids. That was before the time of Abraham. So this is where we find Exodus beginning. And I want you to consider how this story is beginning, even though I think most of us know how this story ends, that the people of Israel exit, Exodus, Egypt. That this group of 70 people, this family, could they really overcome the will of the most powerful person and nation in the world. That seems like a pipe dream to me, but that seems extremely unlikely, not even possible, especially impossible when you start reading the story in Exodus 1. Go to verse 8. It says, eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, The people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. And if we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. We learn elsewhere in scripture that this time period that we are reading about here from Jacob to right here when we are introduced to Moses is over 400 years. That's a long time. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around 400 years. But when you think about that, think about this group of Hebrew people, this 
nation of Israel that wouldn't have even considered themselves a nation. How could they? Why would they? They had nowhere to belong, nowhere to go, and really no reason for hope. Especially when you read this, doesn't that make sense? How could they see God in this? It doesn't make any sense. It would have been super easy for them to think, God is very absent from my world. He's not showing up in my day to day. My grandfather was a slave. My father was a slave. I'm a slave and my son's a slave. That is the existence of many Hebrews. I don't think we would blame them if, if they said, I, I don't see God. I don't even remember the promises that he made to my family whenever that was. So here are my questions as we think about this is real people. Again, Exodus starts with the phrase, these are the names of, these are specific people with names. This is their experience. This is their life. So I think about this. If God has a people, why didn't he take care of them? Why didn't he show his magnificent power that we read about, that we talk about, that we sing about? Why did he wait so long? Why does he allow all of these things to happen to his people? Can you imagine what it would have felt like to be an Israelite? The reality of that would be just, it's hard to understand and even wrap our mind around that how could they have hope in the midst of this? And then you throw in the edicts of Pharaoh at the end of chapter one, who said, this is getting out of control. We actually need to control the population. We're going to kill the babies, the baby boys. I can't even wrap my mind around how horrifying the situation is. It's absolutely terrible. So you have to think, what is at stake here? What is at stake as an Israelite is living their life? This isn't just a nation that is at stake. It is God's very words at stake, God's promises. Is God someone that we can trust? Is he someone that is faithful to the things that he promises and the things that he said? He said they will be a great nation in number and that they will bless the whole earth, all the families of the earth. That was what he promised so what actually happened? This is what I want us to see today is look back in Exodus 1. What did God actually do? Did God show his power? Verse 7, their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Verse 12, the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread. Verse 20, so God was good to the midwives and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. It's fascinating that in the midst of a situation, not a single person would ever choose. God was fulfilling what he said he was going to do, was he not? 
This is totally not how we would have picked, not how the Israelites would have thought. As terrible as slavery was, and it was, verse 14 makes it very clear, their lives were bitter, it says in verse 14. God's hand was upon his people, even through all of these things. The more that they were afflicted, the more that they grew. That's what Exodus 1 is trying to tell us, that God was growing a people, and he certainly was. So I want you to think about this. Look at the situations in your life. Think about the things that are discouraging, that are maybe happening right now in your life. What is really at stake with some of those things? That's what I want you to think about as you encounter issues. Because if God's word is at stake, if God's name is really what's on the table, he will come through. He will act. He will be faithful. Even if it looks very different, it's not in the right timing, it's inconvenient, may not be what we envision, but God will do what he says he's going to do. We need to look to God's promises. I think Isaiah chapter 54 explains this really clearly. And I think this is the experience of the Israelites. In that coming day, no weapon turned against you will succeed. You will silence every voice raised up to accuse you. These benefits are enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. Their vindication will come from me. I, the Lord, have spoken. See, that is exactly what Israel experienced Despite man's opposition, as much as Pharaoh could throw at them, as much as he was threatened, Israel prospered because of God's hand. Now, some of you may be thinking, yeah, okay, if we squint and we read Exodus 1 squinting, we can see God being faithful here. But are we really saying if babies are being killed, this is what God intended? Is this, is, this is God being faithful in his promises? And so that's the tension that I feel. And I, I think it's fair to ask, what if I'm still struggling to believe that God is good, that God is faithful, just because you said, okay, the nation is growing and multiplying in number. Okay. That's a good question. This cannot continue, can it? If this is really God's people, this can't continue. They need out of this situation. It is horrible. It is terrible. They need rescue. They don't just need to know in their heads that God is all-powerful in heaven. They need to experience it now. Now. Enter chapter 2. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby. I'm just going to pause there for a second because this is one of the questions I want to ask God when I get to heaven. Okay, doesn't every mother look at their baby and say, this is a special baby. <laughs> Thank you, Moses's mother. <laughs> anyway, kept him hidden for three months. 
And when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket. A little Hebrew note for you here, that word that is used right there in verse three is actually the same word used in Genesis 6, ark. And it's only used in those two places. Moses was placed in an ark and the ark was set into water, the Nile River. Fascinating. This baby was set in an ark and sent down the river. What was going to happen? We hear, we know that God's hand was upon this baby. This baby's name is Moses. We are in Um, introduced to the biblical character who is mentioned more than anyone else other than Jesus, Moses. Moses is raised in the palace by Pharaoh's daughter. He had all the rights and privileges of an Egyptian, had the best education, had every um, advantage you could have, yet at the same time, Moses identified with the slaves, because he was a Hebrew. He's from that family. He's a Levite. And then as we read chapter two, we see how Moses understands and wants his people to be free, as do all of them, as God does. But Moses uses the same tactics, the same kind of thinking as the Egyptians He tries to use his power. He tries to use his authority. He tries to use that kind of thinking. And so he kills an Egyptian slave master using that kind of thinking. And it didn't work. He wasn't powerful enough to overthrow Egypt on his own. And so he was in trouble and he ran into the wilderness where he started his family fell in love, has his family, and believe it or not, in the land of Midian, it's actually the land of promise that God promised Abraham. And it's no surprise that he was experiencing prosperity, peace, family in that place. But he has this conflict. Is this land just for me? Or haven't I forgotten all of these people that are suffering in Egypt. And so Moses has this struggle, an internal struggle. Is he an Egyptian? Is he a Hebrew? Who really is Moses? And his struggle, I think, is one that we all have. Are we of the world in which we were born into? Are we going to trust the systems, the politics, the power, the wealth that we see around us to solve the problems that we see? Or are we going to trust God? Are we not born into a place that is not our final home where our allegiance should really lie? These are the questions that we ask ourselves, not just questions for Moses. He was at a crossroads in the wilderness. 
And he finds himself there. And in the New Testament, it actually helps us understand the things that Moses was thinking. In Hebrews chapter 11, we learn the things that were going on in Moses' mind. Hebrews eleven twenty four says this, it was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. That's what Hebrews tells us about Moses, about his identity crisis that Moses had to understand. I have to set aside all the things that this world had to offer me and I'm gonna choose to, to be persecuted with the people of God and I'm going to choose to trust this invisible God rather than this one who claims to be God, Pharaoh. And he really had that choice. And if we struggle to believe in God's goodness. We struggle to believe in God's power. We are going through a journey like Moses that we also have to clarify who we really are. It's an identity crisis. Do we trust God and unlearn the ways of the world? That's what Moses had to do. We are just like that. Are we gonna place our treasure in heaven, another home that God has called us to. That is what it means to be my people. That is who God has called us to be. In 1 Peter 2, it explains it just like that. But you are not like that. You are a chosen people. You and me. You are royal priests a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you, you and me, we had no identity as a people, but now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, but now you have received God's mercy this story that we are reading, and we're going to take this season to look through the book of Exodus, is not just a story about Abraham's family. It's not just a story about Moses 3,000 years ago in some distant land that we've never been to that is unrelated to our lives. It is a story about us. It is for us. It's about our hearts. It's about our struggles. It's about the things that we experience too. It's about how God gives us hope for deliverance, for the things that we are facing, the things that we need right now, just like Israel needed things right now, even though God has given us promises in the past. Do we trust him in these moments just like they could, they did, or they didn't, we do, or we don't. This is the same moment when we look forward, we have an opportunity to trust in God, to call him good, to understand who he is, to understand who Christ is, 
or not, and that we can have hope no matter what we are facing in our life because of the God who calls us my people. That God's power, this is what we read in Exodus and what we see today, is that God's power in the past provides hope in the present. The things that we know God did in the past provides hope right now in the present. For Moses, God delivered Moses in an ark through the water. He knew that story. God's power in the past gave him hope in the present. This story, as we continue to read it, it will give us a window into God's power displayed in the past, and it should give us hope in the present. When we remember the things that God has done in our life, we're looking backwards. We're seeing God's power in the past. We should remember things, and it should give us hope in the present. No matter what you are facing, no matter if you have a surgery tomorrow morning, no matter if there is a funeral that you are going to this week that you don't want to go to, no matter what is happening in your life, God's power in the past gives us hope in the present. And that is why we are in the book of Exodus, because there is nothing that is beyond God's scope, his understanding. In Genesis chapter 15, this little 400-year period was not a surprise to God. Genesis 15 makes it very clear. He told Abraham and the people of Israel, this is exactly what's going to happen. It didn't catch him off guard. Genesis 15 Verse 13 says this, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. That is astonishing. God knew what was going to happen. It was not a surprise to him, but he was going to be faithful and use that time for his purposes that are higher than ours, beyond my understanding. But he grew a nation in those years and grew a people and he never left them for one moment. And I love how Exodus 2 finishes. Years passed. The king of Egypt died. The Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. It was time. We may not ever fully understand when God does things or why he does them, but we can be confident that he is always on time in his time. Because act he did. How big is God? Does he still work today? Can you see God at work when you look forward? It was certainly hard for Moses. It was hard for Israel. It can be hard for us. 
sometimes we have to turn around and look and see what God has done in the past to know that he really has the power in the present. Which is why in Psalm 66, we read these invitations. Come and see what God has done. What awesome miracles he performs. He made a dry path through the Red Sea and his people went across on foot. There we rejoiced. By his great power, he rules forever. He watches every movement of the nations. Let no rebel rise in defiance. And it ends this way. It's an invitation. This is the invitation for all of you to come and to see God's power displayed in God's word. As we study this amazing book, come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he did for me. We have to tell the stories of the things that God are doing. For I cried out for help, praising him as I spoke. If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord wouldn't have listened. But he did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God. He did not ignore me or withdraw his unfailing love from me. He never leaves us alone. Never once are we by ourselves. God is with us. God is faithful and God chose Israel to be his people, and they belong to him. But so do we. And he calls us all my people. We pray, God in heaven, we recognize your might and your power today, and we thank you. How amazingly strong you are. How amazingly faithful you are to your promises and to your word. May we lean into that even in moments of doubt and struggle. May we look to the cross and see Jesus that you have given him to us. He's our deliverer. We rejoice in your goodness today and thank you for your words. We pray this in your name. Amen.